Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel today. My name is Greg Paris. If you've joined us online, thank you for joining us. We're glad you're with us today. Just thrilled to have you with us. We are uh, considering the story, the chronological narrative of the, of the Bible, and we have noticed that there are five basic movements from start to finish that identify the high-level upper story of the Bible. Let me just remind you of God's ultimate vision, God's plan for humanity. We're unique in all of the created order. We're the apple of his eye. We're the only ones created in the image and likeness of God. And God's design for us from the very beginning was to be an intimate fellowship, relationship, and community with him forever. That's God's vision. That's his plan. And so we start these five movements with the Garden of Eden, original paradise. The paradise was lost, bad choices by Adam and Eve, our parents and humanity, and consequences occurred. So God now is telling a story through the scripture and through history about how to restore and reclaim his ultimate vision, which is to be an intimate community with us. Paradise was lost. We have now the story of Israel. We're considering that right now. God spoke to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And so we have the story of Abraham. Then there is the story of Jesus, the Savior who comes to the world, the story of the church, those who follow Jesus in the world. And then the fifth movement is back to paradise. It's called heaven, eternal life, the eternal kingdom. God is going to accomplish his mission in the world, which is to restore us to intimate fellowship and community with him forever. So that's where it begins and that's where it ends. And if you understand those five movements, then you've got a good grasp of the big picture. Today we want to talk about Moses and we begin in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Now I assume that you've been reading the story. It's only 12 or 13 pages per week. That's two pages per day. That's like 90 seconds a day and you can keep up. So if you, haven't, if you haven't caught up, it's easy to catch up now. We're only in chapter 4. There's 31 chapters. Chapter 4 is where we are today. Now let me just give you some themes that I've been noticing so far in these first few chapters. One theme is the theme of choices. We think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And God gave us this wonderful gift, maybe the greatest gift given to humanity, which is the ability to choose. And, and you really don't have freedom of choice unless you have the option of choosing what is right or that which is wrong. And that's the world that God ordered. And it's a beautiful freedom of choice that he gives us. Adam and Eve chose poorly. There were consequences of that. And so choices, be, choices really matter. Choices in our lives make a difference. We all know that that's true. Another theme that I've noticed is the need for patience. God's timing and our timing are often much different Look at Isaiah chapter 55 on the screen. Let me remind you of something that's so true. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, indeed. For example, Abraham and Sarah became impatient. They, they thought maybe a surrogate mother to this promised nation was a good idea, but it didn't help at all. It usually just makes things worse when we violate God's timing in our lives. Here's another theme that I've noticed, and that is these, this unlikely cast of characters 
that God chooses. I mean, for example, would you, would you pick this aging, infertile couple, Adam or Abraham and Sarah, to, to form a nation? I mean, they, they had 75 years to do it and couldn't do it. It's just not a, not a good choice, I don't think. Jacob, you could argue, was a deceiver. Why would you allow him to be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel? Joseph, on the other hand, he's this spoiled, pampered, father always loved you best kind of kid, and you wouldn't necessarily choose him or suspect that he'll find his destiny by preserving the entire nation. So God always chooses things that are weak, things that are broken, things that are unlikely. Can I get a witness? God always chooses people who are unlikely, and I'm thankful for that. I hope you are too. So now we move to this fourth chapter. It is the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. It might be interesting for you to know that the word Exodus means to leave or to depart. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because Moses now goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And we need to leave this place and depart from here. And so this is the book of Exodus. I'll remind you that Egypt at the time where the Israelites were now being held in bondage is the superpower on the earth. It is, it is the predominant culture in the world at the time. Uh, they have amazing architecture, fascinating construction. Um, cities are built in Egypt. The pyramids are built. You know, the seven wonders of the ancient world, there's only one of those wonders still standing, and it's the Great Pyramid at Giza. Phenomenal, uh, phenomenal capacity by the superpower of Egypt at the time. And yet the Israelites are used as slaves, free labor, if you will. They're in misery, they're in bondage, they're oppressed. We are long now past Joseph and his relationship with the Pharaoh of the time. Almost 400 years have passed now. And a new king that didn't know anything about Joseph came to power in Egypt. The Israelites at the same time uh, continued to grow numerically, and they were prospering. and, and so Pharaoh noticed that they became such a large number of people that they were threatening to Egypt. And so they enslaved them. They set slave masters over the Israelites. Uh, in Exodus chapter 1, it says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So their lives became bitter, and the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So we pick up the story here. Now, if you haven't been reading the story, there's a good summary of what we've seen so far in the New Testament book of Acts. There's a man there by the name of Stephen who has been falsely accused. He actually becomes the first Christian martyr, but he's before the Sanhedrin. These are the ruling Jewish authority at the time. And he summarizes the story that we find ourselves in right now. And so I'll put this on the screen for us. If we were reading a scripture text today, this would be the one we would read. And so this is again from Acts 7. And As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dwelt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born. He was no ordinary child for three months. He was cared for by his family, and when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. 
He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense, avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and he went over to get a closer look, and he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses trembled with fear, and he did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and delivered by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Now, that's a great summary of where we are in the story. Moses has been delivered himself. He's taken as a baby into the house of Pharaoh. He escapes into Midian after killing the Egyptian. Forty years later, he experiences a burning bush on Mount Sinai, a bush that is not consumed. And God calls him to be the judge and deliverer of the nation of Israelites. Amazing story. Now, Moses spent 40 years in the house of Pharaoh, then left to the desert of Midian, and he's there for 40 years. So he's now 80 years old, and God calls him to go back to, to Egypt to set the captives free. Now, let me just give you a brief three-point sermon. Very quickly, here we go. Here's the first point. It's on your outline. Deliverance always begins with God. Keep the thought. Acts chapter 7 again, verse 34. I've indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. Now this is the word of God to Moses as God is calling him to be this deliverer. And he reminds Moses that he has heard the cries of his people. He's, he's seen them. He's seen their suffering. And I, I want you to hear that. This is where you can make an application from the story to your own life. God sees you. God knows you. God knows your suffering. He sees your pain. He knows about you. He notices you. And he plans to do something about it. Because the God we serve is a delivering God. He is a saving God. He's a redeeming God. He's a great God who makes a promise. He made a covenant promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to fulfill it. And so he saw the suffering of his people, and he's going, to, he's going to act. Second point, God partners with people 
to accomplish his purposes. He partners with people to accomplish his purpose. Now, God partners with a fugitive, this guy Moses. He's cast away as a baby. He is raised in Pharaoh's house. He's the same Moses who murders, the same Moses who in his own strength tried to deliver his people and failed, the same Moses who was rejected by his own people and cast out. And now for the next 40 years, he's dispatched into this wilderness of Midian where he's tending sheep. He's a shepherd. This is the lowest of the lowest strata of society. He's, he spends 40 years stepping over piles. This is, that, this, is, this is what consists of his day. What are you going to do today? Try not to step in it. <laughs> Literally. So here he is. Now, God picks him. He chooses him. Do you see this? This is an amazing moment. And listen to me. God is still looking for partners today. Women and men who may seem unlikely, but God will raise up nonetheless. Listen to your pastor. God is looking for Christians who know that if they attempt something in their own strength, they will fail. But when aware of their weaknesses, will find their strength in Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so these these are the people God is looking for. People who realize they don't have everything they need. They're not the best of this category or that, but they have a confidence in God that enables them to attempt great things and accomplish great things for Jesus' sake. God partners with people to accomplish his purposes. Here's the third point. God calls people who don't feel up to the job. Moses, at the burning bush, hears this summons from God, this call to his life to go back to Egypt. He resists. He goes, no, I'm not the right guy. Remember the last time I tried to do something with the Israelites and their bondage? It didn't go very well at all. Besides, he says, I have a speech impediment. And apparently Moses stuttered. He couldn't get a sentence out. How can I be your spokesperson? And then the rationalization that every last single one of us can identify with when he said, no, in conclusion, no, you're just going to have to find somebody else. (laughs) You've used that line, haven't you? So have I. Who hasn't used that line? No, sorry. I have to use somebody else. People ask about my wife, Beth. You know, she's just this wonderful person, and she comes to our 8.30 service, but she's not here at 10 or 11.30 because she's over in the children's department serving over there. She does that every week, and the reason she does that every week is because you won't do it. <laughs> so, people ask, so people ask me, how's your wife? And I said, she's fine. Well, we just want it because we never see her. I said, well, the reason you don't see her This is a paradox of leadership. I just slid that in there. It really has nothing much whatsoever to do with what I'm talking about. Here's a paradox of leadership. A feeling of inadequacy in a leader is much more beneficial than a bloated sense of self-confidence. Wouldn't it be great if most politicians we know would put that coat on? Wouldn't that be better? 
The Reverend Dr. Billy Graham had a season early in his life in ministry when he did not feel adequate for the job. Most of you recall Dr. Graham probably preached to more people face-to-face than anyone in history. He wrote, and I quote, my faith seemed too small and my doubts seemed too strong. He tells the story of how he struggled with the authority of the Bible. Some parts of the Bible he didn't understand. He just couldn't get his mind around it. He tells the story of how he struggled, and it was in 1949 when he was 31 years old at a spot in the San Bernardino Mountains outside of Los Angeles that he got down on his knees and he committed himself to the truthfulness of God's word, even if he didn't fully understand it. It was a turning point in his life and ministry. You may not know, but today, a simple cross and a stone mark the spot where he knelt that day. Billy Graham's power came not from his self-confidence, but it came from his confidence in the Lord. Now listen to your pastor again. God uses us in spite of our weaknesses. God delights in calling people who don't feel up to the job. God's requirement is not strength and confidence, but it is obedience to his word and dependence on his power. That's what it takes. Just someone willing to submit whatever they have into God's strengthening presence. And this is when great things get accomplished. Moses, who's now totally dependent on God's power in his life, he approaches Pharaoh. He goes back to Egypt and he goes into the courts of Pharaoh. Now remember, he, and he doesn't clean himself up. He's a guy out there stepping in it for 40 years. His beard is unkept. His hair is all long. He's wearing this stinky robe. He's got his staff. He walks into the courts of Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh goes, what is that smell? That's not in the text. I just imagine that's what he did. (laughs) He said, look, I don't know you. I don't know your Lord. I don't know your God. So no, not letting the people go. They're too valuable to us. You know, we're building big cities here and everything, and they're making the bricks. No, they can't go. And he made it worse on the Hebrews because he decreased the amount of straw and he increased the quota of bricks. So the Egyptians were providing the straw for the Israelites to make these bricks, but then they lowered the quota. Raised, he kept the quota, but lowered the amount of straw. And so the Israelites said to Moses, why have you brought trouble and brought us out here in the middle of this desert? Why, why have you done this to us? And then the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 6.1, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. And so what follows is this vicious vicious and disastrous set of plagues, the 10 plagues of Egypt. The first one was the Nile River turns to blood. This is the lifeblood of the nation becomes a stinky sewer. I mean, they have to dig trenches. The Egyptians have to dig trenches along the Nile to get some natural filtering just to get enough to drink. The second plague was the plague of frogs. Everywhere, frogs, in the house, in the kitchen, in the bedroom, hopping through the palace. Pharaoh said to Moses, he relented a bit. He said, listen, if you'll get rid of these frogs, I'll let the people go. Moses prayed. Now, the frogs didn't just hop away. They all croaked. 
I'll wait. I'll wait. It's just right there. All you got to do is just touch it. It's really easy. So the frogs were everywhere, and they just died. So they had to literally they just pile them up in piles. It's, the stench was overwhelming. It was horrific. The next, the next plague was gnats. Nasty, nasty, pesky, biting bugs, mosquito-like creatures swarming everywhere. The fourth plague was swarms of flies. Some of you visited the region of the Boundary Waters or northern Canada in the summertime. If you don't have some kind of netting, you can't function. And the flies are big enough to carry off the children. And they're just swarming. It's horrible. The fifth plague was diseased livestock. All the animals in Egypt started getting sick. The sixth plague was boils, skin disease, these oozing sores. Terrible. The seventh plague was thunder and hail. Hail was so vicious, it stripped all the leaves off the trees, decimated all the crops in the fields, scarred all the buildings, put dents in all the cars, all that stuff. It was terrible. The scholars report to us that these plagues struck at the heart of Egyptian nature worship. The Egyptians had multiple gods in those days. They worshiped the sun, the wind, the weather, the crops. And one by one, these plagues actually undermined the power of these Egyptian deities. God was demonstrating who he is, almighty God. The eighth plague was locusts, these grasshopper-like creatures devouring everything in the path. Everything the hail didn't destroy in the fields, these grasshoppers came along, the locusts came and ate, ate. Amazing. The ninth plague was the plague of darkness. The sun was hidden, oppressive clouds. It's interesting to wonder what Pharaoh may have been thinking through all of these things. I mean, he, he vacillated each time. Well, maybe I'll let you go, or maybe I'll let some of you go, or let the men go, or whatever. And Moses said, look, all of us are going to go with all of our stuff, and we won't be back. And Pharaoh said, no. He hardened his heart against God's plan. And he suffered these plagues. By the way, none of these plagues that came upon Egypt occurred in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites had settled. None of it. They were free from these plagues. If Pharaoh was a modernist, you know, in his day, he may have thought, well, you know, our sun god, you know, it's dark, it's been dark for a few days. Our sun god, you know, he just, he went on vacation. And as soon as the, the light comes back, then we'll just imagine that our sun god is back in his rightful place. If he was a modern, if he was alive right now, he would rationalize all of these signs away from any kind of notion that God was behind it. I mean, after all, the modernists would reason if God exists, and I doubt if he does, but if so, he most certainly would not express himself in these kinds of ways. I mean, because God is just a friendly God, isn't he? I mean, the God that you're, you talk about mostly, he's just a, he's a God who looks just like the, all the trends in pop culture. And he doesn't really care how you live as long as you're happy, as long as you're doing things that Make you feel good. And he certainly wouldn't be upset with anybody or angry about certain behaviors. No, that can't be it. 
So if these plagues, which I've described, actually came to the world right now, it'd be tempting to at least to say, you know, probably nothing to it. You know, just a string of bad luck. Probably related to climate change. I'm about to say something that is not popular and you will not hear it said from places like this very often these days. But the Bible's pretty clear about what I'm about to say and I happen to have a conviction about it personally. I believe it's true. Simply this, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. It always has when people have rebelled against God's best plan and purpose. Judgment is coming. And Pharaoh would not let the people go. What we learn from Pharaoh is that stubbornness and hard-heartedness has consequences when you apply it to the relationship you have with God. And what about this Phrase. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Hardness of heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. What does that mean? How does it even happen? Well, apparently it is a state that you can experience, develop in your own life when you just rebel against God's design and plan. Sin hardens your heart. Rebellion against God's plan hardens your heart. Resentment toward other people, unforgiveness hardens your heart. All of these things contribute to this position of stubbornness against God and his plan for your life. And people dig their heels in. And you understand how it happens sometimes. People get hurt, they get wounded, and somehow they assign blame to God for what has happened to them or what hasn't happened for them. And so they spend much of their lives angry toward God, resentful toward God. God allowed that to happen. My baby died, I'm never forgiving God. And so people harden their hearts. Listen, listen very carefully to me. It is not wise to develop stubborn resistance to God's loving authority and plan for your life, his provision for your life. Let me put it this way. You should never allow the weakness of another person or another circumstance to keep you from God's best in your life. Don't ever let something that is weak in another keep you from God's best. I was in line at a fu local funeral home years ago. There's a woman there behind me in the line. I recognized she'd attended our church for a few years and I hadn't seen her for a while. I said, hello, are you going to church anywhere? No. Why don't you come back to Union Chapel? She said, I could never attend your church. Why is that? Because it's full of hypocrites. I laughed. I said, what, what uh, hypocrites in particular are you talking about? My best friend's husband is having an adulterous affair with a woman in your church. He goes to your church to meet the woman he's having the affair with, destroying my best friend's marriage. I said, that's it? That's your objection? I said, are you going to heaven when you die? She said, I most certainly am. And I said, well, why do you want to go? Not going to be anybody there but us hypocrites. You don't like hanging out with us now. Why do you like hanging out with them then? Hypocrite. 
Hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. Church is full of hypocrites. No, duh. That's the best you can do? Seriously? Can we come to terms with this? And yet, when I tell it like that, you go, well, yeah, of course, we all fail. We all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. We're just trying to figure it out here the best we can, hanging on to Jesus. He's our hope. He's our life. Got it. So why in the world would you pick up someone else's offense and allow that to damage your intimacy with God? You know people are going to do offensive things. You do them. I do them. All God's people do them. So why does that cause your heart to get hard? Don't let that happen. Repent of your sins. Submit to God's will and plan. You don't have to understand it all. Just place your trust and confidence in him. He's the redeemer God. He's the delivering God. He's the God who will set you free. He's the God who will make a difference. He's your hope. Lean that way, not the opposite way. It's good preaching right there. That's good preaching. I don't know what you put in the offering, but it, <laughs> you just got your money's worth right there. Seriously. That was really good. Wow. Phew-ee. The 10th plague, though, could not be explained away. This plague was called the Passover. An angel of death will come to every household in Egypt in search of the firstborn. Look on the screen at Exodus chapter 11. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn in Egypt, firstborn son, will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. I'm a firstborn son. How many firstborn sons? Raise your hand. Keep them up. Look around. All the firstborns. Firstborn sons. In one night, all gone. We're all gone. It's devastating. Horrific pain. The following day, the Egyptians urged the people, the Israelites, to hurry and leave the country. Otherwise, they said, we'll all die. Grief had overcome the nation. 600,000 men, not counting the women and children. So easily more than 2 million people, Israelites, are on their way out. They have taken the spoils of Egypt with them. The Egyptians said, just take what you want, just go. Before we, I mean, you understand, this is scorched earth. After these 10 plagues, I mean, this is like nuclear winter. There's nothing left. And they say, please, just go. And they get a few days out. They're heading east. And they look back to the west. And they see this storm on the horizon. A real desert storm. This is Pharaoh and his armies. 600 of the finest chariots and all of, all of these warriors. Pharaoh has changed his mind again. And now he's going to punish the Israelites for what has happened. And Moses answered the people because they're terrified. They said, what? What did you, you bring us out here in the wilderness to die because there aren't enough graves in Egypt? And they, they're terrorized by the notion of what's happening to them. 
And in Exodus 14, Moses answered the people and he says, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Now that's a prophet right there. Amazing. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land and the waters were divided. The waters piled up like wall on either side. And the Israelites crossed over on dry land across the Red Sea. Moses lifted his hand and the tide turns and the sea fills back in and drowns the entire Egyptian army. The Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea is probably the key story in the entire Old Testament. When you think about the Old Testament, you think about the Passover crossing of the Red Sea. It's a story of redemption and renewal and sacrifice and freedom. It's a story of deliverance. In the New Testament, the key story is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Can you please make the connections? It is a story of redemption and renewal and sacrifice and freedom. It is the story of deliverance. The Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea was actually a foreshadowing of the deliverance of all people through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Make the connection. The Israelites went from slavery to freedom from death to life, from despair to hope. And so too, we have been delivered in all of these ways through faith in Jesus Christ. Praise God. Most of you will not recognize the name Patty Millette. Her biography is entitled Nowhere But Up. This will help you identify Patty. She's Justin Bieber's, Bieber's mother. Beaver. That had to be Freudian right there. I don't know. I don't, know what that, I don't even know what that means. I'll have to talk to my therapist. Why did I call Justin Bieber Justin Bieber? This is probably not good. Her story is one of darkness and abuse and despair. It's a story of the struggles of a single teenage mother as she made a choice for life when she made a choice for Justin rather than for abortion. It's a story of amazing grace as the Lord met Petty at the worst days of her life, providing a path to freedom. She was given a new life. She went from despair to hope. She said, and I quote, the journey of my faith is not in a neat, tidy bow. It's a little messy. It's a little raw. And it's real. And in sharing my faith, I'm not necessarily telling people how they should do it. I'm just sharing what got me through. That's fair enough, isn't it? Listen to this poem. Picture Moses by the Red Sea shore. Pharaoh knows he can't run no more. Water way too deep and wide. They can't swim and they can't hide. But though he was just a man, Moses raised his hand and the Lord came through. He heard their cry when hope was gone. He turned the tide. You can shake your head, but you know it's true. When there was no other way, the Lord came through. The story gathered dust on the shelf till I fell into a trap I made myself. And all my struggling only brought me pain. And I knew I could never break those chains. But the Lord came through. He rescued me. He broke the lock. He set me free. You can shake your head, but you know it's true. When there was no other way,
God brought the salvation of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage by the blood of the lamb. Passover lamb had been sacrificed. And according to the Lord's direction, the blood was spread over the doorposts of their homes. He gave explicit instructions about how to sacrifice this lamb, what to do with the remains, how to prepare it for the meal, and to take the blood in a basin and use hyssop branches like a big paintbrush. And they spread over the top of the doorpost and over either side of the doorpost, the blood of the spotless lamb sacrificed. God told Moses that this would be a permanent ordinance that should be observed every year by the people called Israelites. And so it was true. For centuries and centuries following, they practiced the Passover. We still acknowledge it today, and Jews around the world acknowledge this festival every year. Look at John chapter 1, verse 29. This is the New Testament. And it says, the next day, John, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at the writings of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So I know you can make this connection, that it's no coincidence that 2,000 years ago, while the priests were literally sacrificing the spotless lambs in the temple of Jerusalem, that same morning, that Friday morning of the Passover weekend, those same hours, those same minutes that they're sacrificing the lamb for the ordinance that God has established in the original Passover with Moses in the wilderness and in Egypt, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, was being marched up on Golgotha and pierced through with nails onto a cruel cross. And the blood began to flow. And just as the Israelites were saved, every one of them who covered the doorposts of their homes with the blood of a spotless lamb, so too we have now been covered so that when death and hell and the grave come knocking on our door, we'll pass over because we have applied once and for all by faith the precious blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ, who has become the perfect sacrifice and sufficient sacrifice for our sins, giving us hope and life, eternal destiny. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says this, for as much as it is appointed for men once to die, after this comes the judgment. The judgment I referred to earlier is a judgment that's going to come to the whole earth one day, all the peoples of the earth. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us that every single one of us have been appointed to die, and after that, the judgment. So not only will the peoples of the earth be judged, but you will be judged, and I will be judged. And the good news today is that God has provided a Passover lamb. And that once and for all, death has been done to death. Death has been defeated. Death, hell, and the grave now no longer have sway over us. 
no longer has a sting in our lives because the magnificent victory that Christ once and for all has been secured for us. So what say you? Have you applied the blood of the lamb to your life? The Bible says that as many as received him to them, he gave the power to become the sons and daughters of God, even to them that believe on his name. Do you believe? Have you received this perfect sacrifice? I want you to think about that today. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we know that judgment came to the nation of Egypt and that judgment will come to each one of us. We thank you today for this powerful story that reminds us that if we apply the blood of Jesus to our own lives, that death will pass over us. Could I say to anyone in this room today and anyone listening online, could I just challenge you? No more digging in your heels. No more stubbornness. No more hardening your heart like Pharaoh of old. Could I encourage you today to make yours a story of redemption and renewal and sacrifice and freedom? A story of deliverance? Is today your day? Is this your moment? Or everyone is in a state of prayer right now. Your heads are bowed. Your eyes are closed. Let me just ask this question. Are you in the room today and you're prepared to say, yes, I want to apply the blood of Jesus to my life. I want to know that my sins are forgiven and that death, hell, and the grave will pass over me someday in judgment. If that's true for you, you just raise your hand. Just lift it up. Lots of hands. Lots of hands going up. If you're at home today or wherever you might be watching online, whatever time of day it is as you're watching, can I encourage you, just lift your hand as well. This will be an indication of your intention, of your faith. Now everyone, if you'll pray this prayer out loud after me, I believe God will hear it. If you're sincere, God will always answer, hear this prayer. So pray it out loud after me. Are you ready? Dear Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. I've fallen short. But I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. He shed his blood so I could be free. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Thank you for all the things you've done for me. I want to live for you, so empower my life by your Holy Spirit and prepare me for all you've called me to do. In Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you that the blood of Jesus will never lose its power. It reaches to the highest mountain. It flows to the lowest valley the blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never, ever, ever lose its power. Praise be to God. 
We thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, would you stand with us?